Good morning. A couple of announcements before we get started this morning. We want to say hello to all of you here locally and also to our online family. And we have people listening in Canada, England, South Africa, Australia. We want to say hi to all of you people today. And also our friends in Deutschland because we've just firmed up our follow-up trip. We're going back to uh, Germany in April for another two-weekend seminar. And so to our friends in Germany, we want to say, Ich kann nicht wetten bis wir nach Deutschland kommen. Let's start with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for friends around the world who love you and are sharing this message in in their countries. We pray that you will bless them as they share this truth about you. Bless us as we study today that our hearts and minds will draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing background characters in Old Testament, lesson number nine. And the title this week is Rizpah, The Influence of Faithfulness. But before we get started on that, I got an email this week from one of our listeners in Canada named Jillian, and she wrote the following. I was listening to the current lesson about Uriah and David, and the question was asked, if David was forgiven, why was he not allowed to build the temple? Remember that question a few weeks ago? Okay. The answer is quite simple. God did not intend to live in a temple. He wanted to be in the tent where he could be among the people, and he would not be seen as God uh, only of Israel, but available to all nations. It was David's guilt after he had acquired so much wealth and had built himself a majestic palace. Then he saw the little tent the Lord was living in and decided to give God a better place. This happened in 2 Samuel 7 before he committed adultery or murder. So um, some people were suggesting that it was because of the murder of Uriah that God said, you're man of blood. And uh, this, uh, uh, this person is running in to say, hey, you know what? He was told he couldn't do it before that whole deal. So uh, just a thought from one of our listeners online. So uh, something for us to think about. We want to include those thoughts as well. So let's go to Sabbath's lesson. Somebody read for us the memory text, which is Psalms 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your, will be your shield and rampart. What is faithfulness? The quarterly gives us a definition that I thought was actually quite good. In the last two sentences of the lesson, it says, Faithfulness is not conditioned by circumstances or, or good or bad fortunes. Faithfulness is an unconditional commitment to do what is, what's right, regardless of the cost. What do you think about that? And as I thought about faithfulness, the question came to my mind. Could this question, the question of faithfulness, be the very question at the heart of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Yep. Yes. Isn't that the question? Faithfulness. And you read that in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Paul's writing and it says, but what if some of them were not faithful? Talking about the people of God. Does that mean that God will not be faithful? Certainly not. God must be true even though every human be a liar or is a liar. As the scripture said, God, you must be shown to be right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. Now, who put God on trial? God permitted himself to be questioned, yeah. Who called him into question? Satan. Satan. And this is the entire question in the great controversy. And as we go through the lesson this week on faithfulness, I think you're going to find this question comes back again in some of the explanations we've been given. Yes? Doesn't it matter what we're faithful to? Is Satan faithful to his cause? Even though it's mistaken, wasn't Hitler faithful to his cause? 
I think that's a great question coming up right here. Perfect question, yeah. So the next question I had for you guys is, how do we determine uh, what our definition of right and wrong is? What we're going to be faithful to and what we're not going to be faithful to? What, what standard do we use to determine the rightness and wrongness of what we uh, are faithful to? She says the truth as it is revealed to us in the Bible. Any other thoughts? Loving others. Loving others. The standard by which we determine right from wrong. Would it not be God God himself? Is he not the standard? No. Yeah, so then the question next comes, next the question next comes is if our definition of right originates in God's character, would it be important to have a true knowledge of God? And what happens if someone accepts distorted God concepts? Can someone be faithful to the wrong cause because they've they've accepted wrong concepts of God, Mm -hmm. wrong values, wrong principles, thinking this is what God would do? Saul of Tarsus, prior to his Damascus Road experience, was he faithful to his his beliefs? Was he doing what was right? No. No, no. So how can we tell in any given situation, in any given situation, how can we tell what the right and what the wrong is? You hold up your standard of God and you can compare what the choices are to what the choice God would make. She said you hold up your standard of God and compare it to the choices. Uh, I, I like the direction you're going. Uh, whether you're putting yourself first or others first. Oh, I like that too, whether you're putting self first or others first. And you notice both of these were not a cookie-cutter list of rules because there are two general approaches to, to attempting to live a, a, a life of righteousness. One is understanding principles, loving others more than self, understanding God's character and try to live that character. These principles. Well, the other is, let's uh, codify a system of, of behaviors that we have to adhere to. The Pharisees, of course, are very good at codifying systems of behavior that we have to, to adhere to. They had uh, fi- over 500 rules for Sabbath keeping alone. You could only walk so many steps on Sabbath. You couldn't carry a handkerchief on Sabbath, but you could pin it to your clothing in case you needed one. <laughs> yes. yes. When, I was in, when I was in medical school, I had a, 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 an Orthodox Jewish uh, young man who was on my third year internal medicine rotation team. And we were uh, coming out of the ICU one Friday night, uh, 8, 8.30. It was already sunset. Sabbath was already here. And we came into the doctor's lounge, and the television was on in the doctor's lounge. He's a big Memphis State basketball fan. Memphis State was playing that night. The game wasn't on that channel, but he wanted to watch it. But he couldn't change the channel because you're not supposed to start a fire on Sabbath, and that would be clicking a spark. <laughs> so he asked us to change the channel for him so he could watch the game. You see? Faithful Sabbath keeping. <laughs> List of rules. Yes. Wouldn't you say the most faithful in terms of what you're describing now would be Al-Qaeda? Uh, the most faithful today to a system of rules, potentially? No, and, and, and living up to it would be Al-Qaeda because they'll give their lives, they'll do anything. Yeah, so commitment, conscientious commitment to what they believe to be faithful. The, the Al-Qaeda folks uh, that will strap bombs on themselves to their, for their faith. Yes, or the people who drink the Kool-Aid. Yes. Yeah, remember the Branch Davidians? Remember the, uh, the um, Jonestown? Yeah, th- those people are committed too. Or what was it, the Hale-Bopp Comet group out there? 
Haven's Gate cult, yeah, those guys are, are, are faithful to their, their beliefs too. You notice all these types of faithfulness though, what they're lacking? Reason. They're unreasonable. They don't search for truth. They just have faith, but they don't actually engage their brain to look for evidence of what they believe. So the right thing in any given situation, I think, was, was said very nicely. Love God and love others. You seek to love. And when you're seeking to love, does that then mean that in some situations you may get down on your knees and wash somebody's feet? You may turn somebody's backside over your knee and pop it. Might you do that too in love? Yeah. I mean, does, doesn't your behavior change? Because when you love, you're thinking, I want to do what's best, what's going to help that person most. Did God ever thunder strong words to his people? Yes. Did he ever cry over them? Yes. Yes, the circumstances change. Yes, yes. But there are times in history when you had to do something that society thought was unreasonable. Like for some of the prophets to lay in the street or, you know, seen as stupid, but God, this is, I want you to do this. And it seemed unreasonable to them, even... Maybe Jonah felt unreasonable for him to have to go and preach to Nineveh. But there is a time when you have to be obedient too. Let's talk about that for a minute. Unreasonable potentially from one's perspective, but was it unreasonable if you have the right perspective? Right. But when society looks at it, it might be unreasonable for you to walk around with a yoke around your neck through the streets. So what Paul says, that the things of God are foolishness to the world, so that if we are living God's principles, the world might think we're unreasonable. But will we think what God has asked us to do to be unreasonable? If we understand his methods. And would we be willing to walk through the street with a yoke on our neck if we understood it's going to reach people for God? Is that unreasonable to do in that circumstance? Would it be unreasonable uh, to lay on your side for three and a half years or, or three and a half days or how many long it went? Uh, in order to, to give a lesson for God, if that was going to be a way to communicate a, a message. If we understand the reasons behind it, it's no longer unreasonable, is it? Right, and, but then when you're doing it, and someone's saying, why are you doing that? You're making an obstacle. I mean, if, if God told you, Tim, I want you to go downtown, and I want you to carry your torch around for me, and you know, and he has a, a specific thing he wants you to do, you're thinking, oh, <laughs> But you know God, and you're going to do it. If we're thinking about self, we might think, oh, if we're thinking about the mission, I can tell you as a soldier in the military, you often may be ordered to do certain things that you don't have the full understanding of the layout of the battlefield for, but you really don't question your orders when you have confidence in your commander. You have confidence it's going to be reasonable because you know who your commander is. And so, yes, and, and when you get the privilege to see the whole battle plan, you get to see how reasonable your orders were. Yes. Doesn't it all go back to the concept of God that you have? Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move on to Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson. Uh, Rizba, Rizba was a concubine of King Saul who became part of the royal court of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, after Saul died. Ishbosheth was set up by Abner to rule over Israel in opposition to David's rule in Judah. The lesson explains that concubines were females taken from the ranks of slaves or maids with the express purpose of producing heirs for, the, for the, uh, the, the, the head of the family. Once they had, uh, had a male offspring, they then received status similar to what I call a tertiary wife. Tertiary wife means any wife other than the first wife, the second, third, fourth, fifth wife down the line. So they received the status of all the other secondary tertiary wives. Um, so what do you think about this practice? 
Any thoughts about this practice? Do we find this practice occurring only among those people who did not know God or were God's enemies? No. Do we find, um, and so in, in Scripture, just throw off some people real quick, God's people, God's friends, who had concubines. Abraham. Israel, also known as Jacob. Uh, Gideon. Saul, David, Solomon. All three. Do we find that God gave instructions through Moses on how concubines were to be treated and how their children were to be treated? Yes. Yes, we do. The scripture gives the scripture through through Moses gives some codification of the treatment of concubines. Do we find that God tells them during this Old Testament time that they should not have concubines? No. Didn't instruct the children of Israel at this time. Uh, then this this does it mean it was okay with God? So, so are you telling me that we find a practice here engaged in by God's faithful people and recorded in Scripture? We have prophetic involvement as God gave instructions on how this should be handled. And we have God's blessing of the practice because through the concubines came the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. Would that not be a blessing of the practice, 12 tribes of Israel? The lineage of Christ. The lineage of Christ through this whole process. Um, are you still saying, even though we have all that going on, it's still wrong? Hmm. So what if we find something in Scripture which occurred, which had prophetic involvement, which God blessed, does that automatically mean it's right or in good harmony with God's will? Does it? No. You guys got to really keep that in mind when we read Scripture. How many times do we read Scripture and find something God blessed, God was involved in, we have some Scripture instruction for, uh, God's faithful people did it, and we think, what well, must be okay? Well, Tim, is it just because we think now it's contrary to what we believe? Is that the only reason? Well, let me read out of, out of uh, Malachi chapter 2, 13 through 16. This is Malachi. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broke faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord of Israel. What about Matthew nineteen four through 6, Jesus speaking? Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Or Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 2. Now the overseer must, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Do we find that God gives other inspired directions that this practice really wasn't the best? Yeah, he, he gave the example in the beginning by creating Adam and Eve. And even though he didn't speak against it and allowed it, they suffered the consequences that came about in those families. God uh, gave the, the model in Eden of what he designed. Yet... They were doing it, so so how do we put this together? How do we understand this? Yeah, there's a huge difference though, between what you just read about divorce and tertiary wives. A huge difference. The first one was not 
put away and divorce. They were supportive. All of them were supportive. I don't, I don't really see the connection. First Timothy 3.2. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. Well, that's, that's the New Testament now we're talking about. Must be a different spirit inspiring the New Testament, right? Well, no, no, not at all. God must have gotten a little bit of experience and realized that things weren't quite going as well and he had some new insights and wisdom to share in the New Testament. No, it's not, it's so then when you say it's the New Testament, what are you implying? That, that God didn't have good wisdom in the Old Testament? That, that the Spirit changed its perspective and opinions by the New Testament? No, I'm implying that the customs had changed. Okay. I'm not saying that, that uh, well, for instance, even, even uh, King Herod, when he went for another man's wife, or what was it, his brother's wife or something, he was rebuked for it. Sure. And so here's a king who could probably have all the concubines or wives that he wanted, and he was rebuked for it, whereas the, these kings that we're talking about earlier were not. It was, a, it was a common, accepted practice for them to have other wives. Thank you. That's the point I'm making, that it was an accepted practice. Does that mean it was God's, God's design or God's wish or it was within God's will? That's what the question we're asking, yes. I think over and over in the Old Testament, what I read, you know, like when the guy cut up his concubine when she was, you know, raped or whatever, after it, it always says, everyone was, was doing what was right in their eyes. Yes, and in Judges, yes, very much so. So, the, so the, point, the principle of what I'm trying to make from this discussion is that we can find practices in Scripture that God doesn't specifically condemn directly to the people who are practicing them, that God even blesses as best he can what they're doing, that God gives instructions through the prophets on how, if you're going to do this, you should do it, and it still is not in harmony with God's plan. Slavery, for one thing. Slavery, she says, is another one. Slavery was another thing practiced and codified and so forth, and it wasn't in God's, God's design. Yes? Tim, can we say that throughout the history of mankind, that God has been leading man to all truth, to know him completely and fully, and he, can't, he cannot pour out all the truth at once on any generation, but he is leading them to greater and greater truth. And at different periods in time, they could not handle that truth. There was other things that he needed to reveal to them to lead them farther. And then as, as the revelation took place, then a better understanding of why, like, for example, these practices you know, are, are inappropriate for. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And so what we find here is God meets, as you say, people where they are, and he leads them to where he wants them to be at the rate that they can, they can progress. God could get behavioral conformity at any moment. At any moment, God could get, I promise you, if God were to flash into this room in his brilliance enough to not kill us, he could have all of us doing behaviorally whatever he wants very quickly. But that's not what he wants. He doesn't want behavioral performance. He wants changes of hearts and minds and to change hearts and minds and to have free agreement with him that we actually agree that his is the best way. We do it because we want to. That takes time. Yes, Brittany. Um, in Matthew 19 where he talks about divorce and no divorce and having multiple wives isn't the same thing, but obviously it wasn't God's ideal. He didn't create Adam and Eve and Mary and a bunch of other wives. But anyways, in Matthew 19 when he's talking about divorce, he says, um, then they said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dis- dismissal and to divorce her? Jesus said to them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hard hearts. But from the beginning, it was not this way. So obviously that's God saying that he's meeting you where you're at and you weren't ready for 
Exactly. Got to move on. Because we could spend the whole day talking about that issue. But that's just the, 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 the primer to help us understand the bigger issue that is yet to come in this lesson. And so we need to understand this principle. Uh, Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with, with Rizpah. And uh, this so offends Abner that he changes loyalties and goes over to David, offering to bring the rest of Israel under David's rule. This uh, was so offensive because the, whoever possessed the... Uh, the uh, the former wives of the king it was the same as possessing his his authority his right to rule his throne and so this allegation was basically saying you're usurping my authority and trying to take the kingship. Uh, in Tuesday's lesson, and that's where we're going to get into some interesting stuff. Maybe you've read, maybe you haven't read, uh, but this is going to be some interesting stuff. Tuesday's lesson it tells us to read Second Samuel twenty one one through ten. And let's start that. It says during the reign of David there was a famine for three successes. Three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, a little aside, the Gibeonites were also known as the Hivites. They were descendants of Canaan, uh, son of Ham, through Noah, and were one of the seven nations which were to be destroyed when Israel conquered Canaan. However... <coughs> The Gibeonites presented themselves to Israel as ambassadors from a distant country and deceived Israel into making a treaty with them. When Joshua discovered and the Israelites discovered that they were deceived, they were very, very upset, but they honored the letter of the treaty and allowed them to live, but relegated them to woodcutters and water bearers. Saul, years later, attempted to eliminate them and went on basically a witch hunt against them and tried to kill them and wipe them out. Only a few of them survived. It is these survivors that David is addressing in the following verses in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. And here we go on. The king, King David, summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king. As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul and the Lord's chosen one. So, So the king said, I will give them to you. The king separated Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of an oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ahaz's daughter Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, who she had borne to Adriel, son of Berzelii and uh, Maholathite. <laughs> he handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed and exposed them all on the hill uh, before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. And Rizpah then spread out herself on a rock there. And from the beginning of the harvest until the rain, she wouldn't let any birds uh, touch the bodies. Okay, what do you think about this story? It's horrible. Let's sing the doxology. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. What I wondered is why they had to be out there in the open so long. Why couldn't they have buried them before that? The point, I think, was that the Gibeonites wanted them exposed because it was a way to disgrace and humiliate them and the family of Saul. Uh, the study draws several lessons from the story. 
And let's examine the suggested lessons from our study guide. See if we can find anything useful. The first lesson suggested by the study guide is in the last paragraph on Tuesday's lesson, and it says, God expects us to honor our promises. God expects us to honor our promises. And that this happened because a promise was given that wasn't honored. What do you think about that? If we make a promise, should we honor it? Not necessarily. In all circumstances, should we honor our promises? The lesson didn't give that caveat. At least I didn't see it. Did you see it? We should honor our promises as long as the promises are correct or right. We we shouldn't honor the wrong ones. It didn't say that. Um, Let's let's see whether whether we, we should do as the class says, honor only those promises which are right, or honor all of our promises. Uh, is, there, um, is there a difference between an agreement, a contract, a vow, a covenant, or a promise? Or are they basically all the same thing? You've committed yourself to something. They're the same. Yeah, I always thought they were the same too. I think, I think some people split hairs and try to make one more. You know, there's a song out. You know, I don't give you a promise. I give you a vow. Okay. What's a vow? It's a promise. Contract has legal repercussions. Okay, contract can have a legal repercussion with the state, but still, it comes back to your integrity and your honor. So, did Balaam make an agreement or a contract to curse Israel? Yeah, did he keep his promise? Tried to, <laughs> but he didn't, did he? God intervened. Well, God intervened, wouldn't let him. Well, shouldn't God let him honor his promise? No, God didn't let him honor his promise. Interesting, isn't it? Um, how about if you have given your life to God and have surrendered to him and, and promised to be faithful to him and his kingdom. That's what we do when we, we take baptism, isn't it? When we accept Christ as our Savior and we're baptized, aren't we making a promise to him and his kingdom? Yeah. How about if we made that promise and some years later somebody deceives us into making a promise that if we now keep, we'll violate our promise to God. Then what? We, we, we're going to have to you know, either break our promise to God or we break our promise to the, to the person we promised to. Now we're in trouble, huh? Hmm. What about Jephthah? Everybody know what Jephthah is? We find him in Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, one of the faithful few recorded in Hebrews. And in uh, Judges chapter 11, verse 30 to 39, we read, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He devastated 20 towns from Or to the vicinity of Minnith and as far as Abel Karaman. Then the Lord subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sounds of tambourines? Wow, dancing too. Mm. <laughs> she was an only child, except for, except for her he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have promised now that the Lord has avenged you on, my, on your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. What do you think? Should Jephthah have kept his vow? Awful story. Do you think God was pleased in heaven that this man 
killed his daughter as a burnt offering. Do you think God was happy? Do you think he was saying, oh, I love the aroma of burnt blood? I think that's why Jesus said, let your yes be yes. <laughs> no, we know. Be careful what you promise. He shouldn't have made such a vow in the first place. Why did he make that vow? If you, you, you have an agreement with God without it? Yeah, but we got the same thing when they when they swore to the Gibeonites that they would allow them to live, and that was directly. I mean, so we, you got these two parallel situations here. These are parallel, exactly. So, so how do we understand it? How about this? Think keeping vows. Do you think uh, Jephthah's in the Hall of Faith? Faithful guy kept his vows. How about this? You have a teenage daughter. She makes a suicide pact with some of her friends at school. Vow, promise that they're going to all do this together. You know this happens, don't you? Yeah. I'm not making this up. Okay, and you find out about it. You have a talk with your daughter. Your daughter now realizes she shouldn't have made the pact, shouldn't have made the promise, doesn't want to die. Should she still keep her promise? Wait a minute. We have to be faithful to our promises, don't we? Here's a a quote from Ellen White regarding the Gibeonites situation, page 506 of uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. Great was the indignation of the Israelites as they learned the deception that had been practiced upon them. This was heightened when after three days' journey they reached the cities of the Gibeonites near the center of the land. All the congregation murmured against the princes. But the latter refused to break the treaty, though secured by fraud, because they had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And the children of Israel smote them not. The Gibeonites had pledged themselves to renounce idolatry and to accept the worship of Jehovah. And the preservation of their lives was not a violation of God's command to destroy the idolatrous Canaanites. Hence, the Hebrews had not by their oath pledged themselves to commit sin. And though the oath had been secured by deception, it was not to be disregarded. The obligation to which one's word is pledged, if, if it does not bind him to perform a wrong act, should be held sacred. Now, don't you love Ellen White's balance? Yeah. Isn't that nice? You see, and she goes on to explain that God had already made provision for any person in Cana, for any non-Israelite who wanted to convert and worship Jehovah. They weren't to be killed. Look at, look at um, Rahab. Look at uh, Ruth uh, and others. If they converted, they were not to be killed. So because, the, uh, because this group had committed themselves to worship Jehovah and give up their idolatrous practices in harmony with what God had already outlined for how they were to treat the people there. So... So that promise was okay to keep, but you notice we're not to keep promises that commit us to sin. We're not to keep those promises. True? Is it, is it not true that somebody might have made promises to be faithful to a particular organization before they ever came to the knowledge of Christ? And now they come to a knowledge of Christ, the only way to be loyal to Him is to break those promises to some organization. Maybe they're a member of a gang, and the gang, they're going to be loyal and do all this kind of stuff. Well, they have to break those promises to be loyal to the Lord, don't they? Yeah, we are not held hostage to promises we make to keep us in sin. All right, let's go on. Yes. It would also be wise for us to follow Jesus' counsel about let our yeses be yeses and our noes be noes and not, not swear upon any name of any God. Yeah, and if you actually say, hey, do I have your commitment? Do I have your word? Will you do this for me? And you say yes. Is that less binding than if I say yes, I swear upon the Lord? Is that less binding? Is your word less binding? No. Upon you? I think, what, what, why do you think he said it that way then? Because they were, they were creating a standard that my word yes is not as binding as my word yes upon my mother's grave, cross my fingers, hope to die. <laughs> okay, that's more binding. 
No, he's trying to elevate their characters to say, you are people of integrity. When you give your word, your word is your bond. You don't need to say anything more. That's what he's trying to do. He wasn't trying to, to do anything that... And what they had done is they made this hierarchical organization. Well, this promise has only this much security with it. But if you, if you, if you swear on, on the grave or on Elijah's bones, well, that's going to have a lot more weight to it. Why? Why would that have more weight to it? <laughs> you see my point? And that's what he was trying to say. It goes back to our integrity, I think. All right, Wednesday's lesson. Top of Wednesday's lesson. Now, get this, because we're still talking about these seven sons and their death. We need to understand why this happened. How, how come this was transpired? It says, David consents to the request of the Gibeonites, and seven descendants of Saul are found. It is here that we meet Rizpah again. Her two sons by King Saul are among the ones selected to be executed so that atonement can be achieved. Second Samuel 21.3 uses the Hebrew word kafar, which functions as a technical term to mark atonement and also appears in the context such as the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Did anyone read their lesson this week before they came? <laughs> when you read that, did, you, like, did your eyes like pop out of your head and go, What? Did anybody have any question marks? Should you all just say, amen? No. <laughs> Hopefully you had some serious questions. I certainly did. Is this a valid idea of biblical atonement? Is the lesson trying to suggest that this is somehow related to God's plan of salvation? This thing that happened with these seven sons. Are they trying to connect here that somehow this, this using word kafar here and, and connecting it to the sanctuary sermon that they're, they're trying to draw some lesson regards God's plan of atonement? Why would they link the two? Do we really think that the Gibeonites and Israelites were now in unity because this happened and everyone was happy? If we go down this trail of thinking, could it lead us to conclude that it is through human sacrifice that atonement is achieved and God needed a perfect human sacrifice to pay for the crimes of human sin. And therefore, just as the Gibeonites executed the sons of Saul for atonement, God executed his son to satisfy divine justice. Pardon? She said that's a heathen idea. So so that idea has been lost in antiquity and it, it no longer makes its appearance in Christian thought. Is that what you're suggesting? Or do we find that this idea emerges within the Adventist church itself? I'm going to read to you a couple of quotations. This first one comes out of Ministry Magazine. Anybody heard of Ministry Magazine? It's the, um, it's the uh, magazine for the ministers of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, the article was uh, February 2007, written by a um, seminary professor named Woodrow Whidden. Why did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with spear or sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or lethal injection? I have another quote. If that one's not enough, how about this one? This is out of... The Adventist World Review, December 2007, from the Biblical Research Institute, Engel Rodriguez. Page 40. One of the fundamental problems with the moral influence theory, and of course, we do not support the moral influence theory in this room, and we don't promote the moral influence theory. I just want to go on record saying that, because we're not defending it, but you've got to hear what he says. One of the problems with the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. 
the idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered violation of justice. He's promoting the idea that God killed his son to save us. Hmm. Do you think that God killed his son on the cross? No. 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 What evidence do we have? Well, how about we start with Isaiah's prophecy? Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 4, when he's prophesying about the suffering Savior to come. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Mm -hmm. Isaiah prophesied all those years ago that when Christ came to do his mission, humankind would misunderstand and think God did it to him. We still misunderstand. What did Christ say on the cross himself? His own words, his own testimony. My God, my God, why are you executing me? God didn't do it. Uh, Here's Ellen White's words out of Zara of Ages 761. And this is going to lead us back to our opening dialogue about faithfulness. Catch the the, the series of events when truth is revealed and and the lights go on in intelligent minds. What happens? We're going to ask those questions. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and defilements of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. What, who does she say killed Christ? Satan. Does it just like fly all over you that, that here we have Scripture, inspiration, making it very clear that Christ was killed because he took our sins upon himself, because, because he, he became sin, who knew no sin, he took this position, that the prophet would say, hey, we're going to misunderstand and people are going to think God did this. And I think it, that, 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 there's a, that they are trying to link this idea of human sacrifice with Christ's human sacrifice for our atonement. Did you notice what happened in the intelligent minds in heaven when they recognized who killed Christ at the cross? What happened? More sympathy for him. What's the great controversy start out, start out over? Who is faithful? God, may you be proved right when you take yourself into court. What happens if we draw the other conclusion and we draw the conclusion that God killed his son at the cross? Does that enhance your confidence and trust in him? Do you think the heavenly angels would have been more confident in the Father if they would have seen God killing Christ at the cross? Or would they have more fear in him? It was in seeing that Satan is the murderer that they realized they could trust the Father. And all that he said was was a lie and he was a fraud. And there was no more sympathy and they wouldn't hear anything more he had to say because he's just a liar and a fraud, a liar from the beginning. We need to see this truth as well. That's why Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. It's only in coming back into that knowledge that we will actually be able to be freed from these distortions and actually experience his faithfulness for us and thereby be faithful ourselves. The idea that God requires some death penalty, some legally imposed arbitrary death penalty, substitute of an innocent in order to satisfy some bloodlust so that some justice thing could be served, this is, this is a human misconception about justice. And it goes all the way back, as somebody else in here said just a moment ago, pagan God concepts. 
And Satan, Satan is constantly trying to get us to see God through the lens of human, human motivation. So, why was, was it that David used the same Hebrew word, kafar, in talking to these Gibeonites? What can I do that we can have atonement, that we can have amends, that we find used by God in the sanctuary service? Why are they using the same word? reconciliation he's talking about. Exactly. David is saying to the Gibeonites, what can I do that we who are two people who are not at one, who are apart, how can, what can we do to have one-ment, at one-ment, reconciliation, unity? And what is the Old Testament sanctuary service trying to teach? But here mankind stands apart from God in sin, in rebellion, our hearts are enmity, and there's a plan to bring us back into Unity into oneness. So yes, there is this similarity in the fact that David is trying to bring reconciliation and oneness. But what about the means employed? Should we draw the idea that God is like the Gibeonites? That uh, that that Christ's death. By the way, was Christ's death necessary for our salvation? absolutely yes. We cannot be saved without Christ's life, death, resurrection. I want to be very clear on that. But was it like the Gibeonites? That the Gibeonites wanted those deaths so that their anger and, 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 and vengeance could be assuaged? And so Christ came so that he could die the death penalty to assuage the Father's anger and wrath towards sin. Is that, is that why? Is it like that? No, not at all. The death of Christ was required because it was the only means whereby God could, and you pull your scripture out, everything I'm going to tell you is scripture. Hebrews 2.14, by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.10, by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And 1 John 3.8, by his death he destroyed the devil's work. So it was the only means whereby God, remember the fullness of God, dwelt in the Christ in Christ in bodily form. Right? It was the means whereby God could achieve his goal of freeing the human species from sin and reconciling us back to himself. That's what he was trying to do. And there was only means that he could accomplish that. Yes? There's another little bit of a perspective here, I think, that is very important, that um, these seven sons of Saul who were impaled, not just killed, they were... They were a group of people who, if David had allowed them to live and, you know, encourage them in any, in any way, you know, giving them some kind of substantive support, they would have been enemies of the Gibeonites. It was the Gibeonites' uh, request that, that this totally be settled right when David came to power, that there would be no more conflict with these sons of Saul. And that that really is more or less where it stops right there. I mean, there's this whole idea of uh, atonement, you know, to God or to some higher commitment of, of, of your word or something is, is uh, well, the higher commitment to your word, I think, is, is probably pretty, pretty relevant. I think that there may be some truth in that. The Gibeonites might have feared the sons of Saul, that they would come and take further retaliation on them. Maybe it wasn't just vengeance. Maybe it was self-preservation. Let's preserve ourselves and kill these guys so they don't kill us. Kill or be killed. The old survival of the fittest mechanism at work. Yeah. Where was love, forgiveness, grace? 
What was David's motivation for this whole thing? We're missing that. I mean, we had three years of famine, so the, the seven people are, are killed and suddenly the famine ends. How do, we, how do we reconcile that? That's the very next question hanging. Okay, so David's motivation for this. There's a famine. He inquires of the Lord. He gets the word that this is because of bloodlust of Saul's house, killing the Gibeonites. Uh, goes to the Gibeonites. Gibeonites say, hey, we want these seven sons. Saul, uh, he gives them up. They kill them. Short, sometime thereafter, rain comes after he buries the seven sons in Saul. Rain That's comes. how the story is written. In, yeah. in the quarterly, it says it didn't. The, um, he, God responds to the plea for land only after, J, after David has provided a respectable resting place for the remains of Saul and his descendants. Yes, that's yes, exactly right. After they bury them all respectably, then the rain comes. The lesson says in Wednesday's lesson, how are we to understand this passage? Or can we understand it? In what ways is this an example of something in Scripture we can't fully explain, but we simply need to trust the Lord on? Do you like that approach to difficult passages of Scripture? Let's come to a tough one and say, oh, time to throw your hands up and turn your brain off and stop thinking. Do you like that approach? I don't like that approach at all. You see, there are things, let's be honest, he's infinite, we're finite. There's going to be things beyond our comprehension to be sure. But look at Daniel's example. When Daniel didn't understand something, what did he do? Well, this is one of those things I can't understand, so forget it. Or did he get down and start praying and saying, Lord, help me understand, help me understand. You see, it's okay that we don't understand something, but I think we should be saying, I don't understand this, but Lord, I want to understand, help me understand. Rather than, oh, can't understand, well, just can't understand it, let's move on. No, we should pray for understanding. I think there is some understanding to be had about this lesson, about this point. Um, First, do we accept the idea that the famine was from God, or was it simply the way the author recorded it? That's given a biblical example. I'm just going to say, I looked somewhere else in Scripture, and there was a story of uh, of Ahab uh, wanting to go to war with Ramoth Gilead. And Ahab called uh, Jehoshaphat, Ahab's king of Israel, Jehoshaphat's king of Judah. He goes to Jehoshaphat and says, hey, let's join forces, go to war with Ramoth Gilead. Jehoshaphat says, have you inquired of the prophet of the Lord? Ahab says, I hate the prophet of the Lord because he always says bad stuff about me. (laughs) But I've checked with my 450 prophets and they say, I'll win. So my prophets say, we're going to win. Let's go. Jehoshaphat says, well, let's call the prophet of the Lord. So they call Micaiah. Micaiah comes, and they ask him, should we go? Micaiah says, sure, go, you'll win. And Ahab goes, how many times have I told you you have to be truthful here? (laughs) You read it, it's what it says. (laughs) Okay, and so then the prophet says, the Lord was having a council in heaven. This This is the word of the Lord. The Lord was having a council in heaven, saying to his, uh, his, uh, his spirits, um, which, how can we, how can we uh, seduce Ahab into going into war against Ramoth Gilead so he'll be killed? One spirit suggested this, another spirit suggested that. And then finally one stood up and said, I know how we can seduce him. I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets and will seduce him into going into war. And the Lord said, go and do it. Now, we have the word of the Lord from the prophet. They inquired of the prophet. The word of the Lord came from the prophet. The prophet has given them what the word of the Lord is, that the Lord has sent a lying spirit to be in the mouths of the Ahab's prophets. You can read about this yourself in Kings. Do we believe that God is a liar? Do we believe that God lies? Do we, beca- we, do we believe that God says his angels to be liars and to lie and to deceive? 
No. So what do we understand from this story? It's all about context. Who was Micaiah speaking to? Ahab. Who did Ahab worship? Baal. Baal. Baal bub. God of the flies. Die Fliege. God of the flies. Okay? He's worshiping the fly. So, what kind of God do you think that was? He was a compassionate God, a self-sacrificing God? A God of power. Yes. If Micaiah wants to get a message to Ahab, so that message, his brain registers, you know what? I, I, I have false information. How, how's that going to have to be communicated? Why did my prophets give this message? Because God in heaven made them lie. That's how his brain works. Does that mean God in heaven actually made him lie? No. We find this all through the Old Testament. When King Saul died, how did he die? Oh, fell on a sword. How, and, we find, and we have that recorded in Samuel, that he fell on a sword. Committed suicide. Asked his armor bearer to run him through so these uncircumcised fellows won't get me. Okay? And, he, and he wouldn't do it, so he fell on, his, fell on his own sword, and his armor bearer did as well. We have in Chronicles recorded, however, quote, the Lord put him to death for his unfaithfulness. Therefore, the Lord put him to death. Now, did you, do you hear those two things the same? If I were to come in and say, John put to death Joe, but Joe took an overdose and died alone at home. Are those two things the same? No. So you find this through Old Testament all the time where God is, is described as doing. It's a principle. God is described as doing that which he does not prevent. If he doesn't prevent it, they ascribe him as doing it all through the Old Testament. So in the account of the famine, is it that God actually did it or did he just not prevent it? If you bring in spirit of prophecy, Ellen White talks about the final plagues. And, and uh, a lot of people look at the final plagues, and, and especially those who seem to hold a different view of God than we do, and they talk about that all the time, that God is going to rain wrath down from heaven. He's going to, he's going to, all these plagues are going to fall, read Revelation, the vials of his wrath will be poured out, blah, 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 because they don't understand biblical wrath as God letting go. Ellen White makes it very clear. I was shown that the judgments of God will come out from him in this way. For those who insist in rebellion, persistent rebellion against him, he does not send his agencies to hold back satanic forces. And Satan is given power over the land and the sea, and tempests and earthquakes and disasters will come. As Satan does these things, as God loosens his restraint. So, Spirit of Prophecy brings that in as well. God doesn't hold back, Satan has power. Do we see in the book of Job, God gave Satan some freedom, removed a restraint? Mm-hmm. And what happened in the book of Job? A storm came and destroyed a house that killed all ten kids. Who brought that storm? God? Well, that's what the servant said. The Lord sent a storm and killed. And, jo- and Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see how they ascribe to God things that he allows. So in the, in the text here, one question we should ask, did the famine come because God caused it? Or did the famine come because God simply didn't prevent it? But Tim says he reversed it. You could think that he caused it. Did he reverse it? Do we have a, do we have a confirmation that he's the one who reversed it? We, we know a rain came. We know a rain came. Okay, so then how do we understand then this whole other idea than what was happening? Let's, let's assume that he actually did it. Let's assume he actually did it, that he sent the famine because he wanted to teach them a lesson. Once then he got the word from the Lord that it was because of the bloodlust. Watch this carefully. Did David go to the Lord for solution? Who did he go to for solution? 
He went to the Gibeonites for a solution. Okay, Lord, Saul has, has defamed your name. He's broken a promise. He's bloodlusted all over the place. How, how would you have us reconcile this situation? He didn't do that. He went to the Gibeonites. Now, does this surprise anybody that the Gibeonites wanted seven sons of Saul no. for a sacrifice? Does that, do we find anywhere where God blessed and endorsed this and said, yep, that's the right thing to do? No. No, we don't. Do we find God instructing it? This is what you should do. No. No. David does this even at the end of his life when he says to Solomon, make sure you kill Joab and don't let him go to his grave in peace because he's been an enemy to me all my life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how do we then understand the story when you ring in the realization, wait, even if this was from God and God was holding back the rain, did God instruct them on how to reconcile the situation? No, that came from the Gibeonites. So how do we understand it? Do we now understand it similarly to how we understood the concubines? God meeting people where they are, working with their perspectives, helping to lead them to a better place. Doesn't mean that because if we accept God reversed it, and I'm okay with that. God brought, this, brought, the, fam, uh, brought the famine and brought, uh, the drought, and God also brought the rain. I'm okay. But if we accept that God was the one who did both of those, does that mean that it was his idea for them to sacrifice the seven sons? Not at all. And so to draw those conclusions, um, I, think, I think leads us down the wrong path. I think we have to understand that, hey, these were human beings that went to the other human beings for a solution, and God was working, trying to lead them. I, I really would, and, and what example do we have of God's way of reconciling? How about when the army came to capture Elisha? And Elisha prayed, and they were struck blind. What did Elisha do with him? He marched him into town, surrounded by the, the army of Judah, and, uh, and then he prays that their eyes are open, and their eyes are open, and they find themselves surrounded. Oh, no. And what did the Israelites want to do? What did Elisha say to do? Have a feast. Feed them. Send them home. God has different ways to resolve these problems if we let him. Yes? Uh, don't these people often um, put themselves under the control of Satan because they don't follow God, and so they're in situations where he can't uh, lead them the way he wants to lead them? Like when he let Jesus go on the cross, didn't Satan instantly come in and kill Jesus, basically? I mean, Christ couldn't live without God's protection and uh, connection. And as soon as God let Jesus go, he died. Because of Satan, couldn't you say that? You know, I, I think that's an interesting way to, to describe it. I, I'm trying to uh, ask in my mind, when was it go- Christ was let go? He was let go, as I understand it, in Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. But he didn't, didn't die until the cross. Mm-hmm. So, um, until then, God had been with him and walked with him, so Satan couldn't kill him before that, or he would have. And yes, no, he tried multiple times. He tried when he was a baby, with Herod and so forth. Sure, God had protection. Uh, they, Yes, sure, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, no question about it. Other thoughts about this? Do, do, you, do you think this is a reasonable way to understand what happened here? That these are human beings seeking other humans for wisdom to solve a problem. And these other humans aren't even really that familiar with Jehovah. Yes, I, think, I don't think we have to, it's a great mystery why this was the answer that they got. And why did God allow it to happen this way? What else was he supposed to do? What else was God supposed to do? Parents, if you have kids that are adult kids, and they, despite all your counsels and all your directions and all your pleadings and all your implorings and all your prayers, they insist on still doing stupid stuff. What else are you going to do? 
but deal with them where they are. Yeah. God could have used force. And, and, and that's, a, that's a great point. God does have power, and he can use force to coerce. If God does use force to coerce, that's a great point. Let's talk about that. What happens if he does? When you violate liberties, three things always happen. Love is destroyed. Love is destroyed in that environment. Desire to rebel is instilled in the heart, so he gets more rebellion. And if people actually surrender and follow a God like that, they actually lose their ability to think and reason, and they become non-thinking shells. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, we'll do it, because he said it doesn't have to make sense, and they can do all kinds of crazy stuff in the name of religion, and that's what you see around the world. So yeah, God doesn't want that. We were created in his image. He wants to restore us back to the highest pinnacles that he designed mankind to be. And only way we can do that is by the free exercise of our will to cooperate with him and come to understand his methods and freely choose to apply them. So yeah, he had that option before him, but he couldn't have achieved his ends. That's why this, the scriptures say in Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but by the way the spirit works, says the Lord. And the spirit is the spirit of truth presented in love, leaving people free. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have allowed us to study your word, that you have recorded these stories, these very difficult stories in Scripture to show us how you do work with, with people whose minds and hearts and, uh, are, are hardened and darkened. And, and we know that's exactly how you work with us today. If we don't embrace your, your kingdom, your principles, your truth, if we aren't seeking to know you better, if we insist on going our own way, you will love us still, you will forgive us still, but yet we will reap terrible consequences as we hurt ourselves and those around us. We pray we will be wiser than that. We pray you will give us a hard attitude change, that we will love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate, and that we will be your true representatives on earth. Bless this class, bless our class around the world, and bless those who are sharing this message about you, that you will soon come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.